The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to Go Green Radio, brought to you by Covanta Energy. Reduce, reuse, recycle. Rethink renewable energy and energy from waste. This program will help start you thinking about how to protect our world and its important resources. Now here's the host for Go Green Radio, Jill Buck. Welcome to Go Green Radio, everybody. So glad that you could join us. I want to give a special shout-out to all my tweeps out there who are following what we do. Um, while they're on Twitter and they're sending comments and we're having a conversation, um, if you want to follow me on Twitter and join that conversation, you can do that by following me at, at Jill Buck. Um, always glad to hear your comments and glad to hear your reactions to what we're talking about. Today, um, we're going to be talking about wildlife and and. Not just the animals and, you know, we, we talk about polar bears and spotted owls, you know, a lot in the environmental movement. We're going to be talking about wild land and the value of preserving those landscapes just the way they are. And what's actually threatening that may surprise you. Um, our guest today is Tom Butler and he has, a, he wears a couple of hats that are relevant. First of all, he's the editorial projects director for the Foundation for Deep Ecology. Great organization. We'll talk about that in a little bit. He's also the board president of the Northeast Wilderness Trust, and we're going to talk about this mounting conflict between those who seek to extract economic value from wildlands and those who believe their value is greatest when they're left untouched. Welcome to Go Green Radio, Tom. I'm so glad to have you on the show. Well, I'm really pleased to be with you, Jill. Thank you. You know, I saw a speech that you gave just recently. It was online, and and it was really moving. Um, and I would like for you to explain a term that you mentioned in that speech, and maybe even tell our listeners where they can find that speech online. But that term that you used was called energy sprawl. And I want you to help us understand what you meant by this and what the ramifications to wild open spaces are by this energy sprawl. Sure. Uh, most People are familiar with the term sprawl. We're um, well aware of suburban development or commercial development that encroaches on farmland or, or natural lands in our communities, and we see that, and sometimes we're uh, disturbed by that encroachment on productive agricultural lands or natural lands by sprawling suburban development. Energy sprawl is a similar term, but it refers to the kind of land use changes that are driven by the energy sector. Energy sprawl is a function of the total amount of energy that is being produced and deployed to society and the land use intensity of that production. Most of us, of course, sitting around in our households and going through our daily lives are relatively unaware of the kinds of infrastructure that is necessary to supply all this energy that we depend upon. You know, everything we do in this modern industrial society and everything around us in terms of the material artifacts and even the services that we consume, all this depends upon this cheap, abundant, and perpetually available supply of energy. Well, 
that doesn't come just from nowhere. It's not just a magical thing. Uh, where I'm sitting right now, a beautiful spot in northern New England in, in Vermont, I, I look out and I see a, you know, a lovely semi-natural woodland. But sitting here at my desk, uh, the computer is turned on, and if I flip the light switch, the lights come on. But I don't see that the ability for me to flip on that light switch depends upon this massive complex of hydroelectric dams in northern Quebec which is shipping electricity down through uh, transportation infrastructure, through a series of power lines, into northern New England. And, and in fact, the, the dominant electricity source for my state is this hydroelectric-generated power from these massive wilderness-killing dams to the north of me several hundred miles. So that's invisible. So the energy sprawl that is going on in the world is in many cases invisible to us, but it's a huge amount of area that's impacted by energy resource production and, and refining and mining and deployment of those, those resources, and it's a growing amount of area, both of, on land and, and in the water, in the seas. I thought it was really interesting in your speech when you talked about the reason, a couple of the reasons behind this energy sprawl. Naturally, we all know, and it's it's part of mainstream media's vernacular to talk about how emerging economies are requiring more energy and, and that, that demand for energy has gone up. But it's not just that. It's that the quality of the energy that we're extracting from the earth has gone down. And so we have to spread out, use more land to get, even if the amount of energy that we were consuming globally or as a nation remained the same, we're taking up more real estate in order to meet that same amount of work that we're able to extract from the energy. Talk a little bit about this concept of energy density and and return on investment of energy that we put in to extracting energy and, and, and the actual energy we get out. Kind of explain that to us a little bit more. Yes, you're exactly right. You know, a lot of the way that the society and the um of the, the material artifacts of our culture, the, the way they look to us in, in this particularly, particular point in time depends upon this miraculous nature of fossil fuels, which mm-hmm. are incredibly energy-dense. And that is to say, for the, the, they're extremely concentrated sources of energy. Well, to put it you know, in a very simple way, coal and oil and natural gas, these fossil uh, carbon energy sources, they've essentially been cooked by nature. You know, the, these, are, these things result are the result of ancient, ancient biological processes, you know, basically dead plants and the mm-hmm. carbon in them being laid down in over long periods of time and then being cooked and shaped over hundreds of millions of years. Well, they're very, very dense sources now of energy. A good way to, to think about this is if you or I were to go out to our driveway and uh, we're going to run an errand, and instead of turning the car on, we decide to push it. Mm-hmm. Uh, could we do that? Well, if you know, you're probably very fit. It would be a little harder for me, if, but if I got <laughs> my friends and neighbors to, to get together, sure, we could push a car down the road a few miles. Uh, it would take a lot of work for human muscles. That equivalent amount of work can be accomplished 
with a coffee's cup worth of liquid hydrocarbons. We put that gasoline in the tank, and boom, we're, we're driving down the road at 50 miles an hour, uh, you know, calling a 3,000-pound uh, vehicle. It's, it's this miraculous energy density. Well, that has shaped you know, the development of this particular society, and it, it's become natural to us that we can do all of this, this work in the world uh, through the use of fossil fuels. Well, the best of the best of those fossil energy resources have already been gotten. You know, we've been, a society, modern uh, Western society has been mining coal now for 300 years, and we've been mining oil and natural gas for 100 plus years. Uh, and the easiest, best, uh, highest density and easiest to get fossil energy resources, for the most part, have already been gotten. And therefore, we're going to the places where it's harder and more difficult. When we saw those calamitous images of the Deepwater Horizon tragedy in the Gulf mm -hmm. of Mexico and that horrible scene of the, the platform on fire and the, the loss of life there and the terrible spill in the Gulf, how many people asked, well, what in the world are they doing out there in deep water trying to drill in a place that's so difficult, so technologically challenging, and so, um, so hard to access into these deep, deep water um, reserves? Well, that's because you can't just go out to West Texas anymore and scuff the ground with your cowboy boot and have a gusher. <laughs> that stuff's been gotten the best of the easiest stuff. And so the return, that energy return on our investment has been going down. You know, every time we, we try to exploit and deploy energy resources, there is a, an investment of energy in that process. It takes energy to produce energy. Right. The amount you get back is the, the return on your investment. But the net is what you still have to be deployed to productive use in society. To do um, that work, to move that car. Exactly. <laughs> and as, as we, the, we're sort of moving down the hydrocarbon chain to the harder-to-reach energy resources in, in the fossil fuel realm, it's, there is, you have to do more, as you were just suggesting in your question, you have to do more to keep up, even to keep you know, um, production constant. If your energy return on investment with a conventional oil well in the 1930s was more than 100 barrels out when you've invested the energetic equivalent of one barrel in, and now it's down to roughly 20, or some, some estimates say slightly less than 20 to 1 for conventional oil, and it's much lower for unconventional oil production, such as tar sands and tight oil formations. So... It's getting harder uh, to get that same return, You're, and so you have to do more. Thus, energy sprawl accelerates. You know, it, that, that was a great explanation of that, Tom. And I think, you know, that's something that a lot of people just don't take into consideration. And, and so, of course, if you're doing more and you're, you're moving out in terms of real estate required to produce that energy, there will be ramifications to 
the land and the the wilderness uh, that you're working in. I want to talk about some of the specific energy technologies and their impact on wild lands. A few weeks ago, we had Terry Blanton on, and she's been an activist for many years in the Appalachia area where there is a certain technology for producing coal, which basically uh, removes the mountaintops uh, in Appalachia, and hundreds of mountaintops have been blown off, and the downstream effect to humans has been uh, quite dramatic and very unhealthy. But tell us about what happens to the other living things besides human beings in those areas where mountaintop removal for coal is the norm. Well, first of all, I, I want to agree with you that Terry Blanton is is a heroic activist in her region uh, of eastern Kentucky in the Appalachian coal fields, uh, and, and truly an inspirational figure. Uh, and she, and along with many, many others uh, from that part of the world, have been fighting the coal companies, and particularly this practice. It's a radical form of surface or strip mining. Some people call mountaintop removal strip mining on steroids. Because the, the, the mountains are literally decapitated. That is, they are dismantled from the top, blown apart piece by piece, so that the coal companies can access seams of coal. The, the reason to do this is because it's cheap. It's inexpensive. If you only need a dozen uh, people and, and machines to take apart a mountain and get to a coal seam, as opposed to a, a very large number of workers in an underground uh, subsurface coal mine, uh, it's not difficult to see that the profit uh, incentive is very large toward going toward surface mining. The costs are lower, and mm-hmm. the profits will be higher. The ecological consequences of that, though, and you, you alluded to the sociological, the, the toxic to human health consequences, but the ecological costs of it are extraordinary. In part, this is for a few, a few reasons. Uh, one of them is that the southern and central Appalachians, the region that we're talking about of West Virginia, eastern Kentucky, and stretches down into Tennessee a little bit as well, is ecologically, that forest there in, is uh, the most biologically diverse uh, forest type in North America. It's extraordinarily rich in endemic species, and, and it's just overall richness is very, very high. What the coal companies have to do to blow up a mountaintop is essentially clear-cut the mountain so the trees are all removed. The surface lands, the topsoil, is essentially scraped away, and then they begin blowing it apart. So all of that ecological richness, I mean, the entire habitat of what was there previously is obliterated. It's just gone. And then the second part of the the loss there is that the rubble, or what the the coal company calls um, overburden, they refer to these (laughs) these beautiful living forests and the soils and, um, you know, the, the, the stone uh, under geological formations under, underlying uh, that topsoil, as they refer to all that as overburden. Nice. That material is typically pushed by these bulldozers and large machines in, uh, basically off the mountainside into the adjacent valley, what in Appalachia they call hollers. Mm-hmm. Well, what was there? Streams. Yeah, these I was going to say water. <laughs> mountain streams. Yes, the headwater streams of several of the major uh, rivers of the American Southeast 
they have their headwaters in the southern Appalachian Mountains. It's the most pristine, the cleanest waters of the region. And they also have um, a, a high level of endemic species of richness in, in the fish and the invertebrates there. And those are essentially obliterated as they are covered over with this mountaintop fill. And so wow. there's a two-fold tra- um, um, tragedy there that the beautiful wild uh, forest is, is obliterated, and then the streams in the adjacent hollers are wow. obliterated as well. Well, on that happy note, we're going to take a quick commercial break. <laughs> but when we come back, we're going to be talking about some of the other energy technologies that are uh, spreading out, taking up more landscape, and what's happening to the wild areas in those regions. So don't go away, folks. There's much more great information coming on Go Green Radio right after this. Your voice counts. Call toll-free 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. VoiceAmerica.com. All around the outermost rim of the shield, he set the mighty stream of the river Oceanus, creating Achilles' shield in Homer's The Iliad, Book 18. Rachel Carson in The Sea Around Us said, All at last. Return to the sea, to Oceanus, the ocean river, like the ever-flowing stream of time, the beginning and the end. Moyer's Environmental Dialogues with Dr. Rob Moyer offers lively dialogue and revealing narrative inquiry into how individuals are overcoming obstacles and creating a greener and blue planet Earth. Tune in Thursdays at 3 p.m. Eastern, 12 noon Pacific on the Voice America Variety Channel. Take a wild guess. How much garbage generated in the United States today is converted into energy? Is it 26%, 43%, or 14%? Working here and around the world to produce a reliable supply of clean, green energy, Covanta Energy works with communities to turn household trash into energy. Oh, yeah, that question I asked earlier? Today, only 14% of U.S. garbage is converted to energy. Just 14%. Covanta alone processes half of that municipal solid waste into renewable energy for a cleaner world. For more information about Covanta Energy, visit us today at www.covantaenergy.com. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com. You're listening to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Jill would love to hear your comments or questions on today's show, so call us toll-free at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Write to us, too. Save some trees and send us an email to gogreenradio at gmail.com. That's gogreenradio at gmail.com. Now back to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Well, welcome back to Go Green Radio. If you happen to just be tuning in, no worries. We'll catch you up to speed. Um, we're talking with Tom Butler today, and we're talking about some of the impacts that our ever-growing energy sprawl, energy real estate needs in order to, to meet the supply of energy that's required for our modern society, um, the impact that that's having on our wildlands, not all of our wildlands are federally protected. And as a result, um, as we continue to 
to expand our, our energy needs and energy portfolio. Um, and the, the energy that we're extracting from the ground, and often cases when we're talking about fossil fuels, where most of our energy comes from, um, it's requiring us to take up more land and more energy to bring that energy up. And so the energy sprawl issue was something we were talking about in the last segment. Um, we hit right before the commercial break. We were talking about the impact to wildlands of this particular type of energy extraction method called mountaintop removal. Um, and Tommy did a great job of explaining the ecological impact of that. Lately, we've been seeing a lot of media around another type of fossil fuel extraction method. This time, instead of coal for mountaintop removal, it's oil um, through a technology or a, a, a material called tar sands. And we've seen media around protests, uh, celebrities and activist groups um, protesting the Keystone XL pipeline. And so more and more people are starting to hear this term tar sands. But I'm not sure that all of our listeners know exactly what tar sands are and the impact that this type of oil production has had on wild areas. And I'd love for you to explain that to us. Sure, I'd be happy to. But before I do, I think I'll I'll just circle back very briefly to mountaintop removal coal mining. I did as best as I could in trying to explain that process, but to see it visually is really important. And so I would encourage uh, your, your listeners to, um, to check out the images, photos of mountaintop removal mining uh, from a book that I, I put together a few years ago, I co-edited called Plundering Appalachia. Mm-hmm. And you can see a sequence of images of mountaintop removal coal mining at plunderingappalachia.org. And similarly, you can see uh, images of uh, tar sands development from uh, the latest book project that our foundation helped produce, which is called Energy, Overdevelopment and the Delusion of Endless Growth. Mm-hmm. And there's a sequence of images from the book, uh, a, a visual slideshow, a tour of tar sands and other energy um, uh, issues uh, at, uh, online at energy-reality. Dot org. And that gives a, a person a very quick overview, a tour of what we're talking about, specifically in terms of tar sands. Mm-hmm. And this is, this is kind of interesting, a, a little language digression. Traditionally, people called this area of Alberta and the unconventional uh, hydrocarbon resource there, we called it tar sands. The industry, the fossil fuel industry, has now taken to calling it oil sands. <laughs> uh, framing it a little differently. But the fact is, it's not crude oil that's bound up in the rock and soil and the, sand, the sandy soils of that area of southern Alberta. It's a precursor to oil called bitumen. It's essentially not, it's, it's, it's proto-oil. If, if, uh, if nature had had a few more million years to cook it down, it might have become crude, but it's not quite there yet. So it's, it's a lower grade a fossil energy resource, all mixed up with the earth. So to to use it to make it in any way deployable as a as a liquid fuel for society, essentially gigantic uh, open pit mines are established. The boreal forest, the natural landscape, is stripped away, cleared away, clear cut, and scraped off. You have gigantic machines scooping up this earth, and then 
is going through a process where essentially the, the bitumen is cooked out of the other material, extracted, and then it's still not quite ready to go to a, an oil refinery and be uh, refined into the kinds of products that, that, we, that, we, uh, that we need to run our machinery. It goes through an upgrader process where it's essentially fixed up a little bit and then it can go on and be refined. So part of the, the debate over this Keystone XL pipeline is creating, or the purpose rather, is to create additional transmission capacity to get that synthetically derived crude oil into U.S. and then also into global markets. The, the opposition to it, which has been widespread and very vigorous and is certainly warranted, has been primarily based on the fact that if you fully sort of plumb out the transmission infrastructure of Canada's tar sands resources and you develop all of it, there will be tremendous consequences for global greenhouse gas emissions. There will be a, a, a huge pulse of greenhouse gas emissions uh, coming from that unconventional oil production. But the secondary impact is and in some ways the kind of the most direct one in terms of wildlife habitat is the wild habitat that was displaced, the boreal forest that was cleared away. And then in the case of pipelines, habitat which has to be cleared uh, and degraded to construct that transmission infrastructure. So there's, there's habitat impacts not just where the primary exploitation is happening, but also habitat effects as the transmission infrastructure is put in place. That's not just the case with tar sands, of course. It's the case with any uh, of these other uh, um, resources that we're talking about, whether it's a, a mountaintop uh, wind factory with a, a sequence of turbines or a coal mine that has to um, get its coal uh, to market with trains, uh, train network, or, or a natural gas field, uh, which is has to use uh, pipelines to distribute its um, you know, product into the marketplace, into refining and then and into retail distribution. Now, just to play devil's advocate, because if you look on the websites of any of these companies involved with this type of um, energy extraction, they will say that when they're done extracting the energy, they're going to return the wildlife, you know, the, the landscape back to its natural and, um, you know, back to its original look and feel and and all of that. I mean, that they're going to plant grass or trees or whatever and it'll all be fine. What do you say to that? Well, it's nonsense, of course. Now, there, there certainly are legal requirements for so-called reclamation. The primary federal law which covers uh, the reclamation of surface mine lands, which was passed during the Carter administration, does indeed require coal companies in Appalachia to reclaim and restore those lands after surface mining takes place. In practice, in reality, that uh, legal mandate is, has been not particularly well followed over time, uh, but the more important point here is that some things are irreplaceable. Uh, 
if you look at surface mine lands uh, in Appalachia now, they, may, they are typically reseeded with an exotic species of grass because the topsoil is gone, and mm-hmm. therefore native uh, plants uh, won't even you know, take, play, take root. But in any case, it would take thousands and thousands of years to restore an intact uh, forest and the, and the forest soils of those areas that have been obliterated. So for all practical purposes in terms of human lifespan, human time scales, these places are irreplaceable, even if co- corporations do meet the minimal legal requirements for so-called reclamation. Well, and, you know, I know that a lot of people are, are in tune more and more with the landscape issues caused by, you know, some of the fossil fuel extraction, even fracking, you know, has, has a, placed pockmarks across the areas where, um, where that's going on. But you alluded briefly to the impact that some of the, uh, large solar and wind Factories. We're not going to call them farms. I cut that from your speech. Uh, the impact that they're having on wildlife. Talk about that for just a moment. Well, sure. The, this is a, another factor uh, related to energy density. You know, fossil energy resources are, as we said before, very, very energy dense. Uh, renewable energy resources, not not including large dam hydropower. Um, but if we're talking about capturing solar energy with photovoltaic powers or capturing solar energy through wind uh, with uh, large-scale wind developments, it's a much more diffuse – I mean, those, both of those energy resources from the sun, that is wind and sunshine, they're extremely abundant. But they're also much more diffuse, so it's harder to capture. So it's, it's not quite, sometimes people have a, a sort of plug and play mentality that, oh, we'll just, we'll, we'll get rid of the coal and uh, we'll just, we'll just put wind power, wind plants up every wind turbines. It's not the same thing. And because of that energy, uh, the, the more energy diffuse quality of, of, of renewables, in some cases you need a larger area directly impacted. Wow. Whether that's kind of offshore uh, wind factories or onshore. Now, and whether or not any kind of energy generating um, plant will have impacts on wildlife and wild habitat all comes down to how they are sited, where they're put, and the scale and the type of, of generation that's going on. So there, And that's there exactly, certain, I want to talk yeah, about that. Yeah. We've got to take a quick break, but when okay, we come back, sure. Tom, I want you to talk to us about how our, how our infrastructure is, is currently sited and, and how it's very centralized and what some possible um, alternatives to that might be and how we might get there public policy-wise. So don't go away, folks. There's much more Go Green Radio right after this. Your voice counts. Call toll-free 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. VoiceAmerica.com. Take a wild guess. How much garbage generated in the United States today is converted into energy? Is it 26%, 43%, or 14%? Working here and around the world to produce a reliable supply of clean, green energy, Tolvanta Energy works with communities to turn household trash into energy. 
Oh yeah, that question I asked earlier? Today, only 14% of U.S. garbage is converted to energy. Just 14%. Sylvata alone processes half of that municipal solid waste into renewable energy for a cleaner world. For more information about Covanta Energy, visit us today at www.covantaenergy.com. Each week, Jimmy Gould brings you the stories and the people that you want to hear about. Tune in to A Current Life to hear about the journey to success, how our guests became the people they are today, and the highs and lows they experienced along the way. Each hour will leave you inspired and entertained as Jimmy gets up close and personal with every week's guest and shares ideas you can identify with and apply to your own life. A Current Life with Jimmy Gould airs Fridays at 3 p.m. Eastern Time, noon Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in your brain inspired really fast. All the time. The number one Internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com You're listening to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Jill would love to hear your comments or questions on today's show, so call us toll-free at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Write to us, too. Save some trees and send us an email to gogreenradio at gmail.com. That's gogreenradio at gmail.com. Now back to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Welcome back to Go Green Radio just before the break. We were talking about how, you know, it really depends upon how alternative energy is cited as to whether or not it has a more positive or potentially more negative impact on uh, the landscapes that we're trying to protect. And we were talking about large solar and wind factories um, and as kind of a part of this 20th century energy infrastructure that we adopted, you know, this very highly centralized uh, energy generation that is then uh, put out through large, uh, many, many miles of transmission lines. And uh, Tom, I'd like for you to talk about that model. I mean, I feel like last year when Hurricane Sandy hit, one of the biggest aha moments for me was, you know, it's the East Coast, a lot of old infrastructure, whether you're talking about energy or water infrastructure. And again, it was this highly centralized model of energy generation and transmission. And some of those transmission lines were gone for weeks and weeks and weeks. And as a result, you had people out of power for much longer than maybe they would have been had there been smaller, less centralized, more distributed energy generation closer to home. So talk about that infrastructure model and what impact that is having on wild spaces and open spaces. Well, you've hit the nail on the head. the, The central characteristic of this old school, the current energy economy, is its centralized nature that we have depended upon, at least in, in the electricity sector, of, for, of these large centralized generating stations, whether they were uh, using coal uh, or burning gas uh, and or nuclear, you know, maybe they were heating the steam turbines with a nuclear reaction or a large-scale hydropower. But anyway, very highly concentrated, uh, very large generating stations that then have to distribute their power through a grid um, to distant, in some cases, very distant population centers. And that is you know, a recipe, as you alluded to, for a brittleness, not for a resilient energy economy at all. 
but one that's really um, susceptible to breakdown if something goes wrong. Um, the other key characteristics of this current energy economy, besides the fact of its centralized nature, is that it assumes perpetual economic growth. It's really, you know, that, that's one of the characteristics. It's also highly destructive of both beauty and biological diversity. So if it's efficient in terms of profit um, to blast away apart an ancient mountain in West Virginia and get to a seam of coal, then the energy economy will do that because that's market reality. It's efficiency. But the, the equation uh, of, of the destructive nature of, to, the, to the beauty and the biological integrity of that region doesn't factor in. So that's another characteristic. If, you, if we want a future energy economy that's flipped, that's really highly resilient and that um, not only accommodates or supports, but supports beauty and biological diversity, um, it's, like, it's going to be an energy economy that is not centralized and is going to be distributed and anchored by renewable sources, not by fossil fuels. Getting back to um, your earlier question about way things are cited, I'll give you an example, though, of, of, of thinking about renewable energy uh, um, development that's based on the old model versus the new model. If I, here in my, on my homestead, if I build a barn and I put photovoltaic panels up on it, I've created basically a miniature power plant on the roof of my mm-hmm. barn. Maybe I have my chicken coop underneath it and, and, and you know, park my uh, garden tools in there as well. And so I have a little miniature power plant and it's distributed energy uh, generating capacity. But if a utility, particularly a, a profit-oriented investor-owned utility, wants to generate renewable power, the model is, at least in northern New England, clear-cut a large uh, swath on a mid-elevation ridgeline where there's a fair amount of wind and develop a, a, a system of pads and large, huge, you know, multi-hundred-feet uh, wind turbines and put that up, and that will uh, put, generate a whole lot of power and put it into the regional grid. Well, one of those things is quite durable and sustainable, and the other is, is certainly more susceptible to, um, to any, any problems. Mm-hmm. Um, one is really fulfilling the, the promise of the future energy economy with community-scaled, appropriately scaled renewable generation, and the other is really still plugged into the old model of investor-supplied, profit-oriented, centralized generation that then is distributed regionally into a, into a regional energy marketplace. Well, and the thing is, that model isn't just driven. I mean, certainly there's some corporate, you know, bottom line uh, and economic pieces to that. But, I mean, let's face it, there's been a lot of nimbyism when it comes to siting um, power plants of any kind. And I'm wondering, you know, do you see a day where, you know, those in America who have really not wanted to see power generation actually occurring <laughs> um, out their window will 
you know, will, will change their mind and say, what's best for my region is distributed generation. Yeah, I might see it, but, um, you know, it's, it's better overall for wildlife and for the environment. I mean, do you see the, a shift taking place? Well, yes and no. I, I don't think there's ever going to be a time when the way we generate energy, the way we develop energy resources, and refine them and distribute them is going to be completely without controversy. I don't think that's going to happen because it's just a fundamental part of the equation that different people will have different ideas about how these resources are are produced and distributed to society. But I do see a pretty remarkable shift in the conversation about the future direction of the energy economy. What's the most, uh, the fastest growing part of the energy sector? It's, it's micro-generation. It is small-scale generating capacity. What's the, kind of the hottest topic in energy circles? It's microgrids because of their resilience. You have mm-hmm. universities in California developing their own microgrids. So the, the regional may grid may go down, but your university buildings stay powered up. Same thing with uh, the Marine to, Corps. The Marine Corps is doing this, exactly. um, and, and the Navy's to, been doing it forever. You have exactly. to power your own ship when you're way out to sea. <laughs> exactly. You know, the, it is interesting that a- Amory Lovins and the Rocky Mountain Institute has become you know, the gurus of energy efficiency and this shift toward uh, microgeneration and microgrids. You know, the, the leading thinkers on that, of course, are being contracted by the U.S. military. Because mm-hmm. that doesn't surprise me at all. I'm yeah. a former naval officer, and okay. I know well, how you know efficient we were. Some of the most progressive thinking yeah. on this, certainly in the government, is coming out of the Pentagon. Yep. It's, it's, it's tactical. not out of the energy department, ironically. Yeah, it's, it's tactical thinking. Exactly. You know, and, and I think, you know, one of the things that you mentioned in the speech that we referenced earlier that um, – I get it because I am an energy geek and I studied these issues, but I want you to highlight it for our, um, for our, our audience. You gave a shocking statistic. You said, um, that wilderness destruction is responsible for as many CO2 emissions as every car and truck on the road today. Talk to us about why that's true. This is something that you don't hear a lot about in the conversation about global climate change and reigning in this trajectory, you know, slowing this trajectory of, of climate chaos because of our emissions. There, there's really two parts of that equation. You, you see, hear a lot of people talking about green power, green energy, and shifting our generating sources and our liquid fuel sources to more to renewables. Mm-hmm. That's crucial, of course. And it's also crucial to be ramping down particularly coal-burning power plants absolutely as quickly as humanly possible. But the other part of the equation uh, in terms of global global, uh, greenhouse gas emissions comes from that pulse of CO2 that is um, uh, emitted into the global atmosphere from the destruction of primary ecosystems, that is, primary forests and um, unplowed grasslands. We are still increasing because of population growth and growth in consumption, we're still ever increasing the amount of area of the earth that we convert toward our bend to our will, essentially, 
you know, most uh, prominently, this is displayed in the uh, deforestation in the Amazon basin, but also in the boreal forests of Canada, also in the, the uh, intact forests in uh, Russian Siberia and elsewhere. Anytime you have a forest and you cut it down and convert it to agriculture or to livestock production, the pulse of embodied um, or sequestered carbon in that standing biomass and in the soils goes up into the earth. I mean, goes wow. up into the atmosphere. It's a, it, and so that, that statistic that I referenced is that by some studies, the CO2 emissions from that destruction, that deforestation or conversion of natural grasslands um, annually is roughly equivalent to the emission, CO2 emissions from the, the, the truck, basically the transport sector. Wow. All of that goes to say, I mean, it, it just points to the fact that you can't solve the climate change problem while allowing society to continue to destroy more and more of wild places in the same way that we have been. We have to stop that and as well as changing the way we use and deploy energy. Well, every sixth grader in sixth grade science can probably understand this even better than some of us adults who have not studied the carbon cycle for a long time. It's basically, you know, you, if we're putting more hydrocarbons into the air um, than the earth can sequester. And while we're simultaneously, you know, pulling hydrocarbons, you know, carbon rich fuels out of the ground and burning them and introducing that carbon to the atmosphere and simultaneously stripping uh, our earth of its natural carbon sinks, the natural ability to sequester that carbon, we're going to have a carbon cycle out of balance. And those are the, you know, that's where the consequences of climate change begin to to show their their face. We're going to take a quick commercial break, but when we come back, there's much more Go Green Radio. So don't go away, folks. There's more right after this. Talk, talk, talk. That's all we do is talk. Yeah! If you'd like to talk, call us toll-free right now at 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. That's it. VoiceAmerica.com. Take a wild guess. How much garbage generated in the United States today is converted into energy? Is it 26%, 43%, or 14%? Working here and around the world to produce a reliable supply of clean, green energy, Covanta Energy works with communities to turn household trash into energy. Oh, yeah, that question I asked earlier? Today, only 14% of U.S. garbage is converted to energy. Just 14%. Covanta alone processes half of that municipal solid waste into renewable energy for a cleaner world. For more information about Covanta Energy, visit us today at www.covantaenergy.com. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com.
You're listening to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Jill would love to hear your comments or questions on today's show, so call us toll-free at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Write to us, too. Save some trees and send us an email to gogreenradio at gmail.com. That's gogreenradio at gmail.com. Now back to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Welcome back to Go Green Radio. Just before the break, we were talking about how vital it is to preserve natural wild spaces like wetlands, like forests, and like natural grasslands. All of these have a climate impact. They sequester carbon. And as we keep pumping more carbon into the air, even if we start to bring that down, and I have high hopes that we will, um, we need to preserve those spaces that serve as the Earth's natural carbon sink. Um, and so there's value in that. We can see that. There's economic and social value. There's, you know, human value to doing this. But, you know, for a lot of people like Tom and, and myself who, you know, love open wild spaces just because they are, there's value in protecting these spaces beyond their value to humans. And Tom, I'd like for you to share your perspective on that with us. Well, certainly we see that wild places uh, are crucial for, as you just suggested, for the sequestration of, of carbon. So the, the fact that they're intact, conserved lands will ha- help solve the problem of climate chaos. But you're right, that is a sort of human-oriented, uh, societal, you know, anthropocentric view. There are other pla- reasons to, to protect wild places and wild creatures uh, that aren't just utilitarian. Although, in the history of the American conservation movement, you know, we have all these wonderful national parks, and national forests, national uh, monuments, and uh, national wildlife refuges, state state parks, and other kinds of protected lands. We have this huge body of conservation lands uh, that have come through, about through public and private action. And in the in- initial days when people were arguing for that, for the creation of wilderness areas and national parks, they were, you know, mostly talking about, initially, about human concerns. These would be terrific places to uh, protect scenic beauty, the natural splendor of the earth, and the spiritual values uh, that are so important for many of us who recreate. Uh, You know, there's probably not a human being who has ever visited uh, gone to the rim of the Grand Canyon or visited the Tetons or walked among those coast redwoods at Muir Woods National Monument who has not felt emotionally moved. Mm-hmm. And for many of us, it's a deeply spiritual thing uh, to be in God's creation, as close uh, to it as, uh, as um, you know, we can possibly get. So it's, it's been, uh, you know, the scenic and the spiritual and the recreational values of land conservation have been well articulated for the last century. But the, this, beyond those things, beyond the, the values that we get as human beings from uh, natural places, there's this, this really the ultimate reason for protecting them is because they have intrinsic value. You know, wild places and wild creatures have value in and of themselves, regardless of, of all the benefits or the, that we get from experiencing them. And that, to me, is really the ultimate argument for, for, for conserving wild lands, that it's simply the right thing to do 
for their own sake. And, you know, that seems like it would be a, a minority point of view, and it's certainly been a, a sort of minority argument in the conservation advocacy toolbox through history. But I dare say, if you walk down your street right now, and I know if I walk down my street and started asking people, do you think we have an ethical and a, a moral imperative to share this planet with other creatures? and to, to behave in such a way that we do not cause them to go extinct, I dare say that the vast majority of people you talk to would say, absolutely, that's right. And, and in fact, if we think about human history, our development as a species and the cultural context in which we evolved, the vast majority of our time as a species, that was the worldview that human beings were part of the community of life. It's only more recently in human history that we've forgotten that. Mm -hmm. And um, it's time for a great remembering. And one of the ways we can do that is with direct uh, participation in conservation and direct experience of wild places and wild creatures. Well, and I know that, you know, in your role with the Foundation for Deep Ecology, this is something that the, that organization promotes. And, and I'd like for you to talk about the work of the Foundation for Deep Ecology, what deep ecology is, and maybe even what it is not, because it has been misused by sort of a, an anti-human wing of the environmentalist movement. Um, and maybe you could spend some time talking with us about that. Sure. The Foundation for Deep Ecology is a family-established foundation, charitable foundation, that has worked primarily in land conservation and supporting nonprofit groups that work to protect wild places and wild creatures, and also that worked on ecological agriculture projects. And then a final uh, program area was uh, a publishing program uh, that has developed a, a series of large-format books, on various environmental issues, including energy, this, the book uh, and Plundering Appalachia, two books mm-hmm. I referenced earlier. In terms of the, the practice, the philosophy of deep ecology, I don't want to get too technical about that. There, there, there is a branch of academic philosophy that was uh, uh, really uh, pioneered by a Norwegian philosopher named Arne Ness, who was really considered the father of deep ecology. But in shorthand, it refers to that worldview that, uh, that I just expressed that human beings are part of the community of life, no greater, that they, we're not the apex of creation, and that we have a responsibility to behave in such a way as a, as a citizen of life, but not as the lord or conqueror of the biosphere, and not to treat the earth as merely uh, a gigantic supermarket uh, to serve us or a great uh, store of resources uh, to serve our aspirations. Well, and I, I wonder, you know, in terms of, of, uh, our listeners who may be thinking, boy, I'd like to get involved with this issue. Um, I would really like to, uh, take this philosophy and put it into action where I live. And maybe that's an urban or suburban or a rural setting. What are some ways that everyday people can become active and, and have meaningful input into this, um, this movement to protect wild open spaces? Well, there are a lot of ways to get involved. And one of the very best ways is to become uh, engaged uh, either as a supporter or volunteer with a local or regional land trust. There are more than 
1,500 of those groups, local and regional trusts around North America, almost everywhere you are, uh, in anybody listening to this, if they're a U.S. citizen, is going to be able to find um, a group like that with which to participate on direct land conservation projects. The other, the other thing I would suggest that is, is absolutely crucial is for people to get outside and to <laughs> turn off the smartphone, turn it off, turn off the video games, and take your kids out to your local park or state park or national park or a national forest and go for a walk. Uh, go for a bike ride, uh, go bird watching, uh, go for a paddle in a canoe to experience wild places because we have this amazing system of conserved lands, whether it's uh, private nature conservancy or Audubon uh, sanctuaries or our existing public lands. We have this amazing uh, um, now system of conservation lands that are available for public access and enjoyment. The best way to start to get excited about this and to have thankfulness for the people who came before us and, and worked to protect these places is to go experience them. Mm -hmm. uh, that, that, to me, that's absolutely crucial. And then a second part that goes along with that is to learn a little bit of the history of how these places came to be. Who, who were those individuals who worked so hard to set aside uh, Muir Woods National Monument or Grand Tetons or Great Smoky Mountains National Park? Uh, why did they do that? How did they come to fall in love with a particular place and use their, their time and their passion and, in many cases, their financial resources to make sure that that place would be conserved for future generations? So, well, you have a great uh, book that actually uh, puts that together for folks called Wildlands Philanthropy, The Great American Tradition. And uh, and I, I'm privileged to, to own a copy of that book, uh, and I, I'm glad that I do because it's very inspiring. And one of the things that um, that I noted is that, you know, some of the great uh, – conservationists and, and wildlife advocates, you know, were people of means and they used their their wealth to buy land and, and donate it for, for public use and, and preservation. But some of the great activists who made these wildland preservation uh, projects possible were everyday people with a lot of passion who just happened to be very influential um, because they cared so much. And I'm hoping that uh, maybe listening today will be that 21st century John Muir out there um, who will be inspired to take action. It's been great talking with you, Tom. I'm so glad that you were able to join us on Go Green Radio today. Folks, we're going to be here same time, same place next week. So I hope that you have a great week. Do something in your life to go green. And uh, we'll see you right here, same time, same place next week with more Go Green Radio. Did you get some terrific ideas from today's show? Please join us for more next Friday at 9 a.m. Pacific Time, noon Eastern Time. It's Go Green Radio with Jill Buck here on Voice America. Go Green Radio is proudly sponsored by Covanta Energy, a leader in providing renewable energy solutions for a cleaner world. Visit www.covantaenergy.com for more information. We'll see you here next week.